0: Greetings, Grandpa fans, and welcome to the latest edition of Match of the Week, the series within the Let Me Tell You Something podcasting empire, in which myself, you Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Lachlan Mullan, and then you other Let Me Tell You Something co-host, Silent Cross take it in turns to pick a match from the wide world of pro wrestling and put it into a different context, maybe introduce something to one of us or both of us, or in some cases, see figures that mean something to us in the current, back in a different context in the past. And that's where we're going with this one. It was my pick this time. Simon, what are we watching and when is it happening? So, we are
1: watching the final of the King of the Indies tournament, something which yourself, Lorcan have alluded to in previous episodes of that we have recorded, being sort of like a seminal moment in indie wrestling, and it's one that echoes in today. The final is between Loki and Brian
0: Danielson and the match takes place on the twenty-seventh of October two thousand and one. Have to correct you a bit there, Simon. It is not between Loki and Brian Danielson. It's between Loki and American Dragon. At that point, that was his full name. Ah. First name, American, last name, Dragon. <laughs> and I think he started introducing the Brian Danielson one. I think it was almost like he wanted to create a different alter ego of American Dragon outside of America. And then on, in America, he was Brian Danielson. Oh. Ah, okay. Because he was referred to as American Dragon when he did his new Japan run around 2003, mm. and when he was doing the Butlins tours, not only was he wrestling as American Dragon, he was wrestling under a mask. At this point, he is sort of burgeoning name in the indie scene, American Dragon, one of the top students from Shawn Michaels' training camp, although obviously he attributes as much of his training to William Regal as he does to Shawn Michaels. But that, that's where we are, and this is this was like the precursor to... Ring of Honour. You see, wrestling at this point is obviously in... 2001 is one of the great years of flux in wrestling, along with, like, 2019 with the introduction of AEW, where we're seeing things start to have to reformulate. Obviously, what's happening in Japan with the breaking up of All Japan in late 2000, forming of NOAA, reconstituting around there, and then by the end of 2001, All Japan's being run by... Kijimoto and Shinya Hashimoto's in charge of Zero One, so it's all changing up there. Noah and Zero One are where a fair few number of these entrants go in the next few years. Oh, okay, and then you've also obviously got WCW and ECW dying, and the WWF now being sort of the only game in town, and the reaction to that. And although I think really the biggest influence in how the independent scene evolved at this point was through the absence of ECW, where there needed to be a new alternative. Yeah. And that's what people are searching for. And it was the King of the Indies, as well as a couple of other events, but the Indies event specifically, that inspired Gabe Sapolsky and Rob Feinstein and the guys at RF Video to create Ring of Honor. And you can even see with the aesthetic of this event, it's essentially the same that Ring of Honor copy with the black and red color scheme that is exactly what a ring of honor ring looks like in the first couple of years of the promotion and also with so much of the talent i'm, I'm just going to run down now here's the the 16 entrants at the king of the indies there's aj styles Jardy france not all of these ones went on to become big names but <laughs> american dragon brian Danielson, spanky aka brian kendrick Bison Smith, who went on to have quite a long run in Noah, but uh, died because he lived a hard life. Tony Jones, who appears in the Beyond the Mat documentary uh, that was filmed a year or two earlier where he's having a dark match with Michael Modest. Okay. Christopher Daniels, Super Dragon, Donovan Morgan, Scoot Andrews, Doug Williams, Adam Pearce, Loki, Vincenzo Massaro, Samoa Joe, and Frankie Kazarian. So, out of that sixteen, you have, I would say, at least ten significant names in pro wrestling for the next twenty years or so, mm. at various levels.
1: Yeah, yeah. Obviously, primarily AJ Styles and Brian Danielson,
0: the two biggest standouts in terms of what they've achieved. But well, you know. Brian Kendrick was WWE champion, sort of, for about 11 minutes. <laughs> Gotta
1: love the championship scramble. I loved the Brian Kendrick character at that time. It's a shame it fell off a cliff, but there you are. Shouldn't you have said you loved the, the Brian Kendrick
0: character at the time? That's true. I, could, I should have said that. But then don't they cancel each other out? No, not necessarily. It's, it is always annoying when you do have to write two of the same words, and Microsoft Word having none of it. Yep. Microsoft Word hates that stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, this is also a rematch of the ECWA Super 8 final, which had happened in February of 2001. So that was in the last few weeks of ECW's existence. Oh, okay. Or at least I think ECW had already but shown, had their last show at that point, but really that you knew the, the end was nigh when Paul Heyman appeared on Raw. Yeah. I think that was in March or February of 2001. And so... Yeah, I mean, whilst this is going on, the invasion storylines happening in the WWF, actually. (laughs) But it was also this first time of bringing people from all the... different. Weirdly, back in the indie scene, there was a territory system of sorts. Mm. But that was just because you couldn't afford to fly anyone in. And you just sort of scrounged around the local scene. So you had AJ Styles from the Deep South region, the Georgia wrestling scene, NWA wild side... You had American Dragon and Spanky from the Shawn Michaels Academy. You'd then gone to Memphis to do some... They we were in a developmental contract with WWF at that point. You've got the figures from the APW California scene where this is being hosted. So that is guys like Donovan Morgan, Bison Smith, Tony Jones. And it was Morgan that was booked to win this tournament. I mentioned this in the Nick Bockwin called Kurt Hennig episode. Because yeah. they brought Nick Bockwinkle in to present the winner's trophy and everything. Although I don't recall seeing Bockwinkle at the end, actually. But he was there anyway at some point. Mm-hmm. And whilst watching the matches, he just loved watching Brian Danielson and advised that he should change the booking. And Roland Alexander, who also appeared in Beyond the Mats, took on his word and essentially had the final bee of two figures from outside of their promotion, technically, in the final. Where it was them against Loki, who along with guys like Homicide and the Hit Squad were big names in Northeast New York, Jersey All-Pro, Philadelphia scene. Yeah,
1: was that like sort of IWA as well? Was that Loki sort of stomping
0: ground? No, that was IWA Mid-South, so that was like the Chicago sort of area, the Illinois area. Oh, okay. I don't know if it was specifically Illinois, but that was where your CM Punk's Chris Heroes and Colt Cabanas were making a name for themselves and that is the one group of people that are sort of missing in this I suppose but mm. like the majority of them are sort of from the, more the California scene Samoa Joe, Frankie Kazarian Super Dragon they all came more from the South California scene as well and then you've got Doug Williams coming in from the UK to add that international flavour as well yeah bless him, Doug was always up for it <laughs> yeah he'd lost to Danielson in the quarterfinals of the tournament oh okay, okay. so Loki on his journey to the final one against Vincenzo Massaro on the first night and then on the second night he beat Samoa Joe and Christopher Daniels whilst Brian Danielson beat Spanky on the first night mm-hmm. and then he defeated Doug Williams and Donovan Morgan to get to the final and so they've both wrestled two matches already this night. So this was like the big name, this was the big match in indie wrestling, I suppose. Mm. The guy who come the closest to making a name as a super indie star at this point, I suppose, was probably Christopher Daniels, who had won the ECWA Super 8 in 2000. Yeah. And had featured on WWF TV quite a bit in 98, 99 as the Fallen Angel, and had been given some high-profile matches on Metal and jacked and heat and shotgun and whatever those shows were called in various territories but it never quite got the contract and also curiously around this time low-key was also being quite prominently featured as sort of a super job i remember watching him have a match against crash holly where he was given his own entrance and given plenty of stuff in the match so they were Mm. looking at him at that time as well
1: obviously you've got christopher daniels with that rumor at at that he was like going to be the higher power at one point I mean, how much of that is true?
0: God, wouldn't like one person on one forum said, wouldn't it have been crazy if it had been Christopher Daniels because he does the whole religious thing? And then 20 years from then, everyone just thinks of that that's what... It's like, I, I know quite recently Samoa Joe agreed to this point someone had made online that everyone said that after he did that dropkick to Sting on a TNA show in the crowd, that he was never the same again. And he says, is there any actual proof of this? Because I can't see it. And then Samoa Joe says, yeah, there's no proof of it. I just have never bothered denying it. <laughs> yeah. It's just... <laughs> so it's all that's funny. But I-, I believe we have first-hand... Well, Dave Meltzer. Actually, another thing that was interesting about this event is this is the event where Dave Meltzer met Brian Alvarez for the first time. Oh, okay. They'd already started working with each other online, but this was the first time they met face-to-face. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, we go into this match, and so at this point... Brian Danielson would be 21, I think. twenty 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 one. 21. Yeah. And Loki wouldn't be much younger or older. So they're both very young. That's the crazy thing about all these guys now. They're finally getting their dues, a lot of them, at this point after up to 20 years on the indie scene where they're all... That was always the problem they had, I suppose, with building the um, AEW around the elite because the Jacksons and Kenny Omega and all these other guys were all coming up to 40 when the promotion started. I mean, that's why they're hyping up
1: the Pillars, aren't they? Because the Pillars are all quite young.
0: Yeah, although, I mean, to say stop-start has been the case for a lot of those guys, you know. This is the world they sort of came into, really, I suppose. So if you look at this match, I think it's essentially... It's the startings of the super indie style that was getting the tape traders. Because I've always said, like, one of the problems everyone always says is, like, all these guys now, all they want to do is epic matches and everything. Mm. And I think it was, like... The only way you'd make any kind of money at this point was in the tape trading days. It wasn't in territories. It wasn't building up a location and getting thousands of people to come see your show. So storylines and all that didn't really make much difference. And these guys essentially were independent contractors. Yeah. And the way that you got the attention online was by having the matches that people felt you had to get. The matches that... This was probably rated by loads of people at the time as one of the best matches of the year and... I don't think it holds up as much with 22 years of mm. <sighs> evolution of both these guys' performers and wrestling as a whole, but I can definitely see how this would have been state-of-the-art. I've always said like ECW is like, is like punk, where it just comes in and it completely changes the scene entirely, and then from there you get the offshoots of people who liked different aspects of punk. So people who liked different aspects of ECW went into different arenas in the indie scene, yeah. those that like the violence went into the deathmatch scene. And that's like the people who were into like thrash metal and American hardcore and all that sort of stuff. So you see ZW's and all that. Yeah, whereas those who like the more... T- well, those who first came to love ECW through things like the Dean Malenko-Eddie Guerrero match, this is clearly the follower of that tradition in these matches. But it's also all the imported Japanese talent and so I think there's a bit of there's some Demolinko Eddie Guerrero ECW technical wrestling. Mm. Although to be fair, they never do any standoffs in this match. In their defense cuz that became a cliche very early on in the in the indie scene. Yeah. But I felt like if you could describe what they were often aspiring to in the indies in America at the time of the early 2000s, I think it was trying to go for the move sets and the action of the juniors scene, most specifically the New Japan juniors, but also like Michinoku Pro, WAR and Mexican influences as well. Yeah. Combining that with the big moves and the kickouts and the epic length of the all Japan main event scene of the 90s. Possibly.
1: I mean, to sort of like, Go down both avenues of your point there. New Japan side, you've obviously got Danielson shouting out Masanobu Fushi as like a wrestler he likes a lot. And in the early stages on the mat, it is very New Japan Junior-esque. But the way the match is structured uh, and the way the big moves are used is a bit All-Japan-esque, particularly the top rope back suplexes and Brian's attempts to lock in the cattle
0: mutilation. So you agree with me then?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I'm just highlighting what, why I agree with you, if you see what I mean.
0: <laughs> you sent me one text whilst you were watching this match of, of about an hour or so ago. What's been your big lesson you've taken from this
1: match? <laughs> that cartwheels are stupid and pointless.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny as well. You're seeing so much of... You can see so much of what Brian Danielson is now in that... The way that he's wrestling here. Yeah. Grounded... Suplexes, submission holds as his forte, but occasionally going for a high spot. But at this point, I don't know that he's doing any moves that he still does to this day.
1: With the exception of maybe some kicks to the back, but they're not like... Yeah, ki- They're frantic. They're not like the measured yes kicks or, you know, that he does now.
0: Well, also, they're, they're designed for audience interaction spots. That was him wwe his stuff, I suppose yes true true and he tried to lean away from that in AEW, but doesn't entirely mm. he's always playing it on the cusp with the yes chance but just all these other moves like like at one point he does do a handspring enziguri he basically does loki's move to loki before loki does it yeah
1: <laughs> and you can tell Loki's um, that the way loki executes his riposte it's like you mother... <laughs> what are you doing? What are you doing trying to be me?
0: <laughs> I established from the get-go that in their first interactions, the first 10 minutes or so, it's that Loki is the superior striker. Yeah. And Danielson is the superior grappler. When they're just standing, measuring each other, Key will get some kicks in and Danielson will really sell the hurts. which obviously I think is also playing into the long-term effects of the tournament. I mean, throughout the whole match, he's favouring his knee, and hmm. not once does Loki try and take advantage of that. Yeah. Like, he never even targets his kicks to his leg, particularly. Yeah.
1: And obviously, we're getting a bit of exposition from a member of the audience who keeps yelling at you know, Loki, Hey, how's that arm, buddy?
0: I do remember that Loki does, like, after he says that, does sort of loosen up his arm a bit. Yeah. So obviously, it's been targeted at some point. And again... Danielson doesn't really. There's no targeted limb work, particularly in this match. Mm. The crowd hasn't been indified yet. No. The crowd is being respectful, except for a couple of kids shouting stuff out, but they're just kids at a wrestling show. They're confused why no one else is making any noise, I think, more than anything. Yeah. And they are rooting for one guy over the other. I think one of them really is desperate for low key to kick Danielson more. <laughs> but what's also funny is that it's not dueling chants as in let's go dragon let's go loki or whatever. Yeah. The moments that they do chant which are more towards the end of the match. They're actually trying to drown the other one out. One side's going dragon, dragon, dragon and the other side's going loki, loki, loki.
1: Yeah, it's more like football chanting, really, isn't it? Trying to like represent more.
0: Yeah, but it's more organic it feels like to me. It's like there's a certain moment when there's a double down nowadays. Like there are several double downs in this match. And now I think the crowd would take that as a cue to chant, this is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Or fight forever. And in this one, they really just gradually warm to the match more and get more into the near falls as they come towards the end. Mm. Fight forever
1: for me comes more in forearm spots. I think that's where I notice fight forever. Like uh, all the crowd going, Oh, that's our time to say this kind of thing. Mm. But I, I know what you mean. We've talked about audiences and how they are and it does seem a few of them now seem to have, feel like responsible to say certain things at certain points rather than like you say organically feel the right thing to say or just organically do what they're feeling if you know what i mean
0: yeah absolutely it's also curious how it's structured at the start i was wondering like is it stop start but they are ultimately mimicking the style of wrestling before the wwf and nwa they're almost doing like Inoki Robinson Mm. or any of the old school wrestling of just constantly going back to the lockup, back to neither one's able to gain an advantage. Yeah. And so they just go back to the lockups right into like 10, 15 minutes into this match. They're going back to it and going back to the match, they're like sort of resetting every time, rather than what you would do now, where I think one would take control early on, and then it would just be the seesaw battle, and they would do it that way as well you don't even see in AEW they're not going back to, you know when Danielson and Omega had a match, or when Danielson and Adam Page had a match, they weren't going back to lockups and headlocks 10 minutes into the match, even when they went 60 minutes, that I can recall, and maybe I'm misremembering it,
1: yeah for me that shows like how they're wrestling it like a tournament final they're being cagey about it because you know you've made it all this way and you have wrestled already that night you know you want to like make sure you you can win it you can't necessarily win it in the first five but you can definitely lose it in the first five that seems to be like the mentality both men are wrestling with
0: there's no inbuilt storyline as you say other than these guys are in a tournament and at this time tournaments were very popular videos to get because obviously first of all they're mimicking the beloved New Japan tournaments <laughs> and all Japan tournaments. And they even they don't have the wrestlers on the outside like they'll do at other indie tournaments. Yeah. To mimic what how New Japan and all Japan used to structure their tournament finals, which they don't anymore, to be fair to them. And then all coming together and posing for photos and the trophy at the end and applauding the guys that made it to the final. Mm-hmm. But also it was just it was a lot cheaper. You know, you can only, you only have to book eight people for the show and just get them to work three times one night for, for two of them. Yeah. Yeah, I always have said that. Really, if you were to do it, is it's a one-night tournament. The more logical thing would, would it for, for the matches to get shorter as time goes on. That mm. the first round matches should be going 15, 20 minutes. The semifinals, 10 to 15. And then the final, in many ways, should be a sprint because both guys have barely got anything left. yeah. Uh, I would love it if they structured it like that. I mean, obviously, one of the ways they get around that is by installing time limits. Like, the King of the Ring, it used to be that there was a 15-minute time limit in the first round, so in theory, they're going deliberately faster in order to make sure that they can get through to the next round, where they can take their time a bit.
1: And it's also how, like, your storyline devices can obviously be like, someone's arm is injured, so they want to try and get a quick finish because their arm hasn't got much left in it in the final. Whereas, obviously... You could also flip that plot device around and go, okay, they're trying to defend their arm, so they're slowing the pace of the match down. You've got ways and means of, like, telling the story.
0: Yeah. I just wish more tournaments would try it the other way around. Yeah. I think there was a Battle of Los Angeles tournament final that only went, like, five minutes. But for the most part, it is longer and longer and longer.
1: I guess the logic is you want your your hotter talents to showcase more of their stuff.
0: In theory, you want the final to be the best the best match, and usually the better matches are longer matches is the mentality they go, and they're going for it with this by having them go just under 30 minutes. Yeah. To me, it's too long, mm. and they do run out of ideas, and they do start repeating themselves, but not in a like deliberate way. There's no sense of escalation to me, really. When Danielson twice or three times gets exhausted and breaks the cattle mutilation himself because he can't hold it any longer, I don't see any reason why that continues to happen and why it works for him at last the, the last time yeah and i was wondering like because another thing they do that's sort of following if you watch the super j cup i remember seeing this spot so many times i was able to call it and i think very often the case is that someone will go for a move and they'll hit it the first time but then they'll go to the well again and when they do it the second time it's counted reversed it's blocked it's countered. like i remember like Tucker Noku went for a moonsault on Eddie Guerrero in their match, and he hit it, but then when he went for it the second time, Guerrero put the knees up. Mm. And again, I can get it insofar as you've scouted the move, but it also makes the other guy look bad for just not being able to think of anything new. Yeah. But I I actually prefer the John Cena CM Punk way of doing it with their trademark moves, where they'll usually know what's coming, and so will evade it the first couple of times. Mm. And then as the match wears on, they either, they're too tired to block it the next time or the opponent finds a creative way of doing a version of it. So, it, like, in the Money in the Bank, CM Punk can't do the corner knee that he usually does. Yeah. Like, John Cena avoids it or he catches him or whatever. And then later on in the match, John Cena's up against the ropes, just the ropes, not the corner. And Punk sees his opportunity and does the knee, but it's from the middle of the ropes instead of the corner. Yeah, I, I just wish people would mix it up and do that more because, like, the third time Danielson puts loki up in the corner after having hit the back superplex the first time and then loki reversing it the second time i was like oh come on (laughs) but to be fair at that moment i was that was the time when i was like well they're running out of ideas but to be fair to them what danielson's doing at that point is trying to set him up for a dragon superplex yeah i feel you know i was like okay well they're they're aware of that (laughs) you know i do love that when he hits the top rope back superplex, someone in the crowd just before yells out, Fly, dragon! Fly! <laughs> I did like that. He I does. love that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and obviously, he's, he seems to be using the dragon suplex as his setup move for the cattle mutilation, obviously, because of how the opponent lands and such. So, I guess the top rope attempt at the dragon suplex was his, like, you know, super murder death. Like, I'm ready to, like, put this guy away. But just atmospherically, it just never feels like that. I, I, I do agree with your point that. I feel we miss a bit, and it is a very sharp gear change towards the finish. Like, we've gone from, like, first to, like, fourth, really. And we haven't gone through two and three, and it doesn't... It's just odd.
0: Well, I think what what we associate with that usually is one wrestler having a period of dominance. And that never really happens. It felt to me, because of the, the reputation that Loki developed <laughs> over time as being quite a selfish and quite a dangerous wrestler. Yeah, Reckless. that. I kind of expected him to do more stuff that looked like it legit hurts and also swallow up more of the offense, and I don't think he does. He's pretty... It's more Danielson than it is low-key, I would have said. If you were to, like, there are websites now that do stats, I would have thought if you say, like, who gets the most moves in this match, I would have probably gone, it's like... 60-40, or maybe a bit more, Danielson over Loki, it Yeah, sort of surprised me. Yeah. Um, but also, to be fair, there's always been this sense in the storylines, in the indie scene, that, like, Danielson is the one guy that Loki respects, and Danielson is the one guy that seems to have Loki's number, if anyone did. Yeah. And that was factored into Ring of Honor, because Loki does win the first match in Ring of Honor, where it's the triple threats. But then when they did the round robin, everyone got one win over the other. Daniels got a win over Danielson. Da- uh, Loki got a win over Daniels, and then Danielson beat Loki in the f- in the main event. Mm-hmm. And that was like the last time they had a singles match against each other. Then for like three years. And whilst they pre- presented Loki as the ace and Danielson more as like a Kabashi like figure, as a bit more of an underdog that can lose to guys. Yeah. Like, he doesn't get to reach the ROH Championship Tournament Final whilst Daniels and Loki does. He loses to Doug Williams because he's the guy that they can have lose. And also, at the time, they didn't know for certain that Danielson would be able to commit because he was putting everything into trying to be a regular in New Japan as, like, Liger's big rival. That was his dream in 2002, 2003. Mm. And he partly achieved it. But Loki was presented more as the ace. But there was always that sense of, well, the one guy that could beat, that beat Loki fair and square... Has always been Danielson. Yeah, and even when Loki turned heel, they did a curious thing when he was heel and he was with um, Homicide and the Havana Pitbulls. Their names escape me now. What their faction was called, but it's something to do with dogs. I know that. Hmm. I'm just it's it's just gone out of my head. How Loki dressed was a sign of like the level of respect that he had for an opponent. Like if he had no respect for his opponents, he'd just be in full on like gangster trousers. Top and everything. Yeah. But when he took on Brian Danielson in their only other singles match they had in like 2005, I think it was, there he went right down to trunk. Ah. So it was like Danielson was the one guy that he respected enough to show full.
1: Sporting seriousness. Like he would towards. be the
0: one guy that he would probably still shake his hand if, and follow the code of honour with. Yeah, yeah. I'm you with know? you. I'm with you. It's weird that their, their paths never crossed that much after that. I was looking it up on Cage Match. And after two thousand and two well, January two thousand and three they were in a five way. Mm. And then the only times they had anything that after that was they tag teamed together on the second night of Jushin Thunder Liger's visit to Ring of Honor having wrestled Danielson in the previous night. Oh, okay. Then there was the final battle match a month later. Yeah. Then they had a match in PWG in January of two thousand and eight and that was it on the indie scene. I know that they had a match in Florida, uh, FCW, when they were both briefly in the developmental leagues. Yeah. Because Danielson got called up for NXT season one and then. Loki for NXT Season 2, but he was Caval.
1: <laughs> with Lay Cool as um uh, his pro.
0: I got what they were going for with that, but it just never quite worked out. Well, Loki just never...
1: I mean, what is Loki as a character? Like, he never seemed to connect as a character, really, to me, When it, the times I saw him. Oh,
0: I disagree. He was over like Rover in the indie scene. He was the top star of the indie scene in 2002, 2003. Yeah. He was the badass and he also had this really deep booming voice. His promos were a bit one note, but they were still decent promos for what he was mm. for what he was getting across. There's a reason that Ring of Honor made him their first champion and their ace for the first year or two of the promotion until politics got in the way. And like I said, WWE were looking at him seriously back in this time when he is well, I mean Danielson's build as 5 foot 10 at the start of this. Match, <laughs> <so> I'm like <laughs> Where is this 5 foot ten coming from? This FTR world of 5 foot ten. <laughs> but to be fair to him, he is visibly bigger than Loki. Yeah. So Loki must be at best 5 foot 7. At the very best. Yeah. And WWE were looking at him at that time of the land of the giants because he projected so much more aggression and size in his kicks Mm. and his whole gimmick and he had that deep voice as well and he says you know it's not the size of the fighter but the size of the fight that he brings and so that's why they were able to conceivably present him as the unstoppable back you know in the same vein as taz essentially but whereas taz's specialty was suplexes and shoot style wrestling loki was like an update of that where it was strikes And submission holds as well Mm. Like Loki also had an MMA Inspired Style as well Yeah, Which again you don't really get enough of in this match You don't get enough of what made Loki The biggest star in in indie wrestling For the next couple of years In this match really
1: yeah it's a strange presentation but, the, really. but
0: they're both still developing at this point yeah the problem with tournaments is that it's not about characters or stories necessarily mm. other than the tournament itself you can build it up as we say other matches with injuries and what have you but it's not about i hate you for the things you did it's just oh we i was seeded three and you were seeded six and this is the quarterfinal so
1: i've got to kick your head you in. bastard yeah <laughs>
0: And that's why King of the Ring never quite got over either, I suppose, compared to the other big events. Well, they could
1: have done more with King of the Ring because they they had a weekly television program, so...
0: Yes, they did. But it, there's always that mystery. You, you're not booking it on the matches. You're booking it on the concept of the matches. Yeah. Like, I remember the 2000 King of the Ring. I was so excited for that because it looked like it was booked perfectly that it would end with uh, Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho in the final. Mm. And they even... I remember the montage, like, I think it ended with them two face-to-face. I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be like... WWF's equivalent of the Super J Cup because it was like Kurt Angle, Eddie Guerrero, uh, Rikishi, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Val Venus, yeah. all guys that could go. And the mid two thousand WWF is basically almost as good as WWF's ever been from a storyline and in ring perspective. But they literally booked it entirely the opposite of what I expected it to be. <laughs> like, I expected, I genuinely expected Benoit, Guerrero, Jericho and I can't remember who the other one was to get through to the to the semis and then Benoit and Jericho to get through to the final mm. and all the people I thought that were going to win that first round didn't and instead the match it was about Kurt Angle and Rikishi yeah oh yeah Crash Holly that was it Crash Holly was the other one <laughs> and Bull Buchanan I think a Bull Buchanan was just like the let's get him over by giving him a win over Crash and then he'll lose to yeah whoever he would have been booked against Jericho I think in the semis. But yeah, I got it completely wrong and it just... And the matches were only booked to go like six or seven minutes and not because of the exhaustion factor, just because we've got too many matches to fill out.
1: Yeah, there was other stuff on that uh, pay-per-view, wasn't there? That was the thing, yeah.
0: Yeah, but they weren't even selling it explicitly on Benoit Jericho in the final. They were just selling it on four first-round matches and the theoretical semi-final and final, you know? Yeah. With the Royal Rumble, the close thing is the Royal Rumble, but the match itself is what's exciting, Whereas with the tournaments, it's just seven wrestling matches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess because
1: with the Rumble, you've got all the plot devices of like who can like interact with you, yeah. like uh, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas you don't really want to sell the farm too much. I know you said in that montage they ended with uh, Benoit and Jericho like looking face to face. In my them.
0: mind, they did. They might never have, but in my mind, they did. Do
1: You did. reckon you've been <laughs> Mandela Maybe. <laughs> yeah.
0: I'm not about to watch the 2000 King of the Ring now to find out. (laughs) Someone else can do that for us.
1: Who knows? They might suggest one of those matches for Match of the Week in the future. You never know. But yeah, I don't really have anything else to say about this match explicitly, do you?
0: No, I've got a few more things. Like, they do the big moves and they do the big kick-outs, you know, that All Japan thing. Mm. To be fair to Danielson in particular, I think he kind of grew out of that pretty quickly. Yeah. And instead, would build it all towards one big event at the end. It wouldn't be taking second rope key crushers, you know, super death versions of Loki's finishing move, and then kicking out at two. Yeah, it just doesn't do anyone any good, really. Like, yeah, I mean, you look at like maybe one of the best examples of that would would be the Jay Briscoe Mark Briscoe matches, where they'd just be hitting each other with burning hammers and everything, <laughs> and kicking out at two. And that's kind of the worst end of where indie wrestling was going at this point where they were doing the moves for the Japanese guys, but not necessarily Mm. the story and the discipline to do it. And again, because of the nature of it, this, and this is what the indie scene has always been. You can't just build it around storylines necessarily. I mean, that's what Gabe Sapolsky essentially did with ring of honor. He took these guys that had all been brought together for one off big sporting events. And then he took that serious sport, but then tried to insert storylines as time went on and character dynamics so that, danielson and low-key they respected each other but daniels hated both of them and they both hated him and daniels hated the concept of the code of honor and everything yeah. whereas in this one christopher daniels just like everyone else is coming out and helping them all get back up to their feet at the end and applauding them on gabe Polsky started to insert character dynamics and again he brought in so many of these guys i mean i think nearly all of them had set foot in ring of honor by a year into the promotion yeah Samoa Joe and Frank Frankie Kazarian did, but he never really got a proper full run in Ring of Honor because he was more tied to TNA. Mm. Samoa Joe, he brought in to face Loki as a henchman of Christopher Daniels, and then within six months, he's put the title on him and... The first big run of Ring of Honor was with Samoa Joe as champ. Vincenzo Masara is just one of those ones that went missing. Adam Pearce, Ring of Honor did bring him in, but he was always one that was more old school and I think a bit older than everyone else in this scene. Yeah, You know, he, he was more like trying to be like a Michael Hayes or someone along those lines than trying to be Eddie Guerrero or Dean Malenko. And so we never, Adam Pearce never quite fit any scene as a wrestler. Yeah. But him to quite thrive. But now, weirdly, he's in his most successful period ever. As an off-screen <laughs> <figure. talent. laughs> Yeah. On-screen talent. Yeah. We might have to talk about that at some point in the near future. Yeah, yeah, uh, Doug yeah. Williams, the guy that really brought British wrestling into American awareness on the tape trader scene. Mm. And Ring of Honor brought him in. Like I said, they put him in the tournaments and put him in the, world title final, and that would have been just off of, like, these couple of matches that Gabe Polsky will have seen. And he was made, like, a a big rival of Danielson as well. Yeah. Because obviously Danielson was trained up in that style. Scoot Andrews was kind of one of the big could-have-beens at this time. He was called the Black Nature Boy, and he was the guy that Daniels beat in the Super 8 tournament final, and it just... And he had a bit more size to him as well, but it just never quite... Connected. ...took off for him. No, Donovan Morgan, like I said, he was the APW's guy, and he also had long runs in Noah. Like, this whole APW produced a number of guys that were good, that did very well for themselves in Noah around this time, in the sort of junior heavyweight tag division. Because they were all big guys, but they weren't quite tall enough. Right. So you got guys like Donovan Morgan, Michael Modest, Bison Smith did get into the heavyweight scene, and I think he was in the match where Masawa died as well. Like, he had a long run there oh right Tony Jones nothing really came for him Spanky obviously we know what happened with him he was the first one to get signed up by the WWF yeah and then AJ Styles I don't know what happened to that guy (laughs) and Jardy France I genuinely don't know what happened to that guy (laughs) but I would definitely recommend people watch this to get a sense of if you want to see Danielson's evolution as a performer like this would be one of the very first ones you should watch I do want to do. There is at least one match in the promotion that Shawn Michaels put on, in created for his students, Texas
1: Texas Wrestling Alliance.
0: Yeah, there is at least one match on that in that promotion. I want to, I want to cover yeah. for the match of the week at some point. Those people who know will probably already figure out what, what I am talking about. But it's curious seeing that both of these guys sort of fell into the pitfalls, but escaped them pretty quickly to forge their own path. Mm. really especially Danielson and Danielson always had a discipline that others didn't necessarily have and maybe that's why he in the long run is the most successful out of all of these guys and was
1: definitely easier to work with (laughs) it seems Mm.
0: (laughs) Nick Bockwinkle he seems to know a thing or two about wrestling Simon he
1: does he does
0: (laughs) (laughs) but anyway that's it for this one assuming there are no amounts of 5 star matches coming up after this we're going to be doing your pick for the next match of the week Simon we're going to a new promotion for us on this show and a very different kind of presentation and a different kind of match, I suppose. It's almost three matches in one, really. Yeah, I'm very excited by this. It's something I've been wanting to do. We're running the gauntlet, but who are we running it with,
1: Simon? Uh, we are running the gauntlet with Penta. Penta Alzira Miedo, as he's currently known. But obviously, Pentagon Dark this time. And is it the Black Lotus Society that he's fighting?
0: Triad, I think, is their the name. Black Lotus, the Black Lotus, Lotus Triad. triad. Although Black Lotus is not part of them, but it's her triad of wrestlers. Yeah. That are listed in this one as Goku, Yurei, and Hitokiri, but you may better know them as Kairi Hojo, or Kairi Sane, or Kairi, she is now, <laughs> Mayo Iwatani, and Io Shirai, a.k.a. Io Sky. Yes.
1: So, two, two of these people you'll have seen on the, um, obviously, the big, well, the mainstream stage of WWE, NXT, and what have you. I'm, I'm very excited. I've wanted, Like I say, I've wanted to do Lucha Underground for a long period of time. It was something when it was out, I was very annoyed I couldn't seem to find a way of getting hold of it. And it was something that conceptually very much excited me, but obviously Lucha Underground had its, as, as a concept, had its own problems and pitfalls, which we'll go into a little bit of detail at, but...
0: But at least it was, like you say, it was something different. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it had some big names behind it as well. And uh, we've said several times when we've been talking about Lucha Bros matches that when we get frustrated at Pentagon, it's just that we know that there was a time when there was no one who looked more badass than Pentagon. Yeah. And it was this time. It was this time in Lucha Underground. So it's Season 3, Episode 13, if you need to look it up. And it takes up the entire episode, as you found out, Son, where we were supposed to be doing a bulk record. This <laughs> and then. So it's another long one, as has this episode been. But anyway, if people want to get in touch with you in the time in between, Simon, and maybe recommend some early indies wrestling for you, how can they do so? I
1: bet they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm signed so on Simon Cross Free, free for the number of cattle mutilations that Danielson locks in in this match.
0: Yeah, the cattle mutilation, we, we should have talked more about that, but we haven't got time now my name's Lorcan Mullen that's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A at the start of American N at the end of Dragon or at the end of American that's my Twitter account Facebook Letterboxd if you put our gmail.com at the end of it that's my email address get in touch with the show at lmtwisepod.gmail.com lmtwisepod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles but there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen my name's Simon Cross thank you for letting us tell you something have a great week until the next week.